the outdoors is becoming so colonized in every possible way, not just private property, but the commercialization of access. To do certain outdoor activities, one has to like, you know, own a bicycle, no, a nice a bicycle or a pair of skis or a snowboard or a canoe or pay for and make six months in advance a reservation at a campground. Don River Radio. Welcome to Don River Radio. This is Dylan Gautier from Marley Barham. I'm going to be speaking today with Amish Morrell, who is an artist and educator. Hi, Dylan. Hi, Amish. Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good to see you. Good. It's nice, nice to finally meet you. Really, it's been so long. I know, I feel like I was looking back at our um, many threaded, multi-layered emails that started now years ago, it seems like it has been. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to finally get to meet you. I thought maybe just to start, if, if you wanted to say your name and say what, what you do. Sure. I'm Amish Morel, and I live here in, in Toronto or Toronto. I'm an assistant professor at the, at the university. I'm really an editor and a curator. I, I was editor of C Magazine, a contemporary art magazine, for a long time. I've edited a number of books, including Outdoor School, about contemporary environmental art, which um, is a lot about some of the practices I've been involved with, with, with artists as a curator and as also as a collaborator and sometimes as a guide, <laughs> as a you know as a hiking guide or someone who sort of takes people out and kind of spends time with them in the outdoors. But yeah, I've got a degree in environmental philosophy from many years ago, and and I'm from Unamagi, Cape Breton Island, and that really shapes a lot of my thinking. I'm from from a river. I'm from the Margie River. I grew up in the headwaters on a little farm on the banks of the river. And I was just very aware of how rivers, you know, shape people's communities, their cultures, their worldviews, their consciousness, you know, their economies. You know, Marguerite is a place where there are little, little settlements along the, the river and, and the river really shaped, you know, those the formation of those communities and people's survival, you know, whether it's fishing Gasparo on the Southwest Marguerite or, or, or salmon on the Northeast Marguerite or, and also just like mills and farming. I mean, the rivers, the valley itself is full of, you know, rich, very rich sort of sedimentary soil. It's it's a kind of, the wealth of that place is the river. Um, and the way that the, even the highlands, the Cape Breton highlands are, it's an incredible kind of sponge of peat and uh, and like boreal forest. And it's a place where people have, you know, uh, Mi'kmaq people, uh, settlers have hunted caribou and moose um, and logged and so on over, over the years. So, yeah, I know the rivers. Rivers have always been like a, a a place of return for me because rivers connect you with, they connect you with the world. The river takes you to the ocean, and the ocean connects you with other rivers, and it's this kind of vast, you know, circulatory system, you know, of the planet. And when you live on a river, you really feel that. You can see the in the springtime, the high water, the you know, the little streams, you know, coming off the hillside, little gullies and waterfalls, and you know, things kind of like they fill up with with moisture, and then. And the snow melts and the, the, the fiddlehead ferns come out and movement changes. So, uh, yeah, I've been traveling rivers my whole life. I've lived on other rivers, the Delaware River, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York State. Yeah, all the rivers of Toronto. And so when I came to Toronto, that was a point of like connection was what was the watersheds? You know, what was was the rivers and the streams and how they connected to the lake and how they cut these ways for the city. The city itself could not colonize. And so there's a sense of kind of safety and respite and like return in those in those streams. And one of the first things I did when I came here as a student was, was walk from York University to the lake down the the, uh, the Black Creek, which is a little stream that 
flows out of a pond on campus. I saw the pond. I said, oh, where's the pond? You know, where's that going? It goes down. You, you follow the kind of the, you follow the lay of the land into these valleys. And these valleys take you through these other spaces that, that keep the city at bay. And so that was one of the first things I did. And, and probably for the last 25 years, I've been exploring the different rivers and, and, and water systems as something I do mostly to ground myself in the place, but also to practice different ways of moving through the city and also inhabiting a different imagination of what the city is. That there's a very different kind of consciousness when you travel the meandering rivers, the amount of time it requires, the way it fluctuates depending on the season. In contrast to the subway that cuts through the city or the roads that cut through this grid system in particular ways. It was a way of inhabiting a different imagination, but it was also a means of survival in a very hard-edged, kind of unfriendly, unfamiliar city place. So yeah, rivers are a place of return you know, for me. Because you've had this long time you know, engaging with, with rivers in that place. How do you think the you know, public perception of these places has changed in that time? Do you think that the relationship of Torontonians has shifted? Yeah. I, I think it really has shifted. I, I mean, in the in the 70s, Pollution Probe had a, a, a funeral to the Don River. I think it might have been 76 or 78. And there was very much a sense that the rivers were degraded you know, places. There's where people dispose of waste. You know, they, they create landfills. They're, you know, they put industrial spaces right up against the river as close as they could without encroaching, <laughs> risking the, the, those, the, those things that they're making. And huge infrastructure that kind of traverses power lines, highways. It was a way to put things where people, the people didn't want. And I think it's changed because there's a very heightened sort of environmental awareness of like the, the state of the rivers. And there has been a need for, you know, for parkland and places like the Don are traversed by, you know, paved bike paths, you know, you know mountain bike trails that have been, been used in different ways. But I think that there's a kind of a greater sort of consciousness of around those spaces as, you know, as wild spaces, you know, a lot of, you know, people have, you know, have occupied, have lived in, in the Don River and, and the Humber and other rivers as places of, of respite and also survival. But I, th- I think there's just been a sort of constellation of like criticality and aesthetic ecological thought and indigenous thought converging in some of these spaces, you know, through the work of like of planners, environmentalists, activists, artists, you know, people occupy these spaces in different ways. And the spaces in so many ways are kind of a palimpsest of like the cultures of Toronto. You know, they're, you know, places for, uh, you know, for cruising, you know, for nude sunbathing, for foraging, for cycling, for places of ritual, ceremony. There's a vastness, you know, to some of these spaces. And the imaginary of the rivers is, is vast and multi-layered. It's, it's multi-dimensional. And there's also a lot of wonderful writing about the ravines and, and the rivers. Yeah, I think about that. And Michael's, there's a line about the rivers. This is a, a line that an artist shared with me once. It was sunken rooms of green light. And it conjures to me how you can go from Summerhill Station, you can walk down the street, and you can just go down under the railroad tracks, down a kind of a rickety walkway, and you're under the city. You're under all this infrastructure. The infrastructure has just been built over top of it and the river, it's, it's suffered from the erosion and, and there's houses built right up to the edge and there's a, a rail line across it, but it's full of this kind of barrier stone that they build, they put in there to protect from stormwater devastation. 
but it's 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 a magical place and you find these traces of occupation habitation people going there to like get high or to you know have a nap or have a picnic or walk their dog or do a, you know a range of things yeah they're kind of fugitive wild spaces in the city I love this kind of forced meander or the way that the rivers take you out of that grid system, which is so strict in Toronto as it stretches west from, from the dawn. I wanted to ask, this is a two-part question, but first of all, you're doing some winter camping and how do you get a wood stove out into a tent in the middle of a, a frozen lake it is the first question. And two, the fact that you engage with these waterways year round. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what it is that these spaces in the winter that is maybe especially, you know, attracted you or, or brought you into a pretty unique way of traversing those places. Mm-hmm. I answer the first question. Uh, I have a sled. I have a couple of PVC pipes with cord strung through them and they attach to a disassembled rock climbing harness. I put around my waist and I, I can pull, you can pull like, you know, 50 pounds across flat surface, you know, hundred pounds even without much, much drag. I have a little portable wood stove. It's actually not small. It weighs about 20 pounds. And I have a kind of a trapper style canvas tent, which is wonderful. It's such a great space to, to sleep in and to be in. And the pictures you're talking about are from a trip I did two weeks ago. I went up to the town of Killarney up about four hours north of Toronto. And I joined a group of people, including a woman who does a lot of winter travel and summer travel in the Arctic. And the group had, um, you know, sleds. They were in snowshoes. I was on skis. I'm, I'm a, really a skier. I love to ski. And um, so myself and one other pulled sleds, and they just slid right across the uh, frozen bays. You know, and when, when we had a tailwind, we were moving along very, very quickly. There's very little drag with a sled. And it only becomes challenging when you have to go up and down deep portages. We need to cross like a headland from one, you know, water system to another. Then you have to really work hard, and then you have to really be very good at getting down these steep hills uh, with a, a you know, weight behind you and navigating around the trees and so on. Um, but it's, it's slowed down time. You're not in a car. You're moving at three kilometers an hour, but you're moving 10 kilometers in a day and you're setting up camp. And that's your day. Your day is you wake up, you light the wood stove, you have coffee for a couple of hours, you have your breakfast, you pack up and you load up your sled and you haul it for, oh, you know, five hours and you're enjoying the, you know, being out and the vastness of space and seeing wolf tracks and seeing deer in the distance and, you know, seeing the sky and just, just kind of responding to the weather. That's a big part of it is that is, you know, turning around headlands and the, the wind changing and suddenly you're, oh, you're out of the wind and you're back in the wind or then you get driving snow and you can't see very well. So you have to take your time and, you know, make sure you know where you are, but the wood stove really transforms winter travel. And yeah, it's new adaptation for me. I, I just started doing it this year and, it really changes things. I'm just getting used to. I'm just kind of, it's sort of, as you're describing, Dylan, that's kind of iter- iterative process. It's like, you kind of work these things out. And I've been working on this for, oh, I guess, like 30 years or so. So every winter trip gets better. You know, it's the right, te- you know, it's an older technology, but it's a, it's actually a much more intelligent technology. And it allows you to really kind of live in conversation with where you are in a different way. What's the biggest difference having the wood stove? Is it that you get to stay out there longer and, uh, stay overnight or I mean, what were you doing before the wood stove? Well, I used to travel like lighter and greater distances. And so I would do like a long multi-day ski tour and you'd, you'd stop skiing and suddenly it got cold. We'd have set up tent with frozen hands and then cook supper on a little gas stove that didn't generate much heat except for the pot you're heating. Then you had to crawl in your sleeping bag and kind of stay warm until the morning and hope you stay warm. 
<laughs> hope your, your sleeping bag was warm enough. And it meant a lot more exertion. Um, and there's no respite from the cold, except during the day when you're moving. And you're, you were kind of metabolized in the sense that you were in synchrony with like, you could adjust your layers and you could adjust your exertion. So you kept at a state of like comfort, dryness and, and warmth. And the wood stove allows you that when you stop and you set up your tent and you light the fire, suddenly you can like relax. You can make a pot of tea or you can boil some water or you can cook or you can just sit there and warm up your toes and you can hang your clothes in the tent and dry them out. And so it's cotton. So it, it breathes, it dries out very, very easily with the, with the wood stove. And your routine becomes gathering firewood, stove, cooking. And yeah, it's, it's like a warm place to go, but your warm place is somewhere out in the forest or on a lake or some nice camping spot you found. And you're with whomever you're, you're traveling with or if on your own, you're maybe on your own, you can read a book and turn the pages without your hands you know, freezing. It's a radical change and it's wonderful. I mean, you... You also can do it with very little impact. You're gathering dry, dead wood. You might be collecting water if you have a stream nearby or in boiling it on the stove. It just has a nicer kind of flow to it. It's, it's slowed down because you're not trying to cover a huge distance. You're traveling more in conversation with, where is there a nicely sheltered tent spot where there's good firewood, there's water, you know, wind protection, uh, these kinds of things. And when you go north of the city, in the cottage country, nobody's in a cottage in the wintertime. It's it's incredibly vast. It's like it's it's amazing. No one's up there, but it's just you and whoever you're with. This question about the winter experience of these places and prior to encountering your your practice, it hadn't really occurred to me. You, know, you think you kind of stay inside in the winter, but this slow practice that you're describing, it's really eye opening to me. It also had me thinking about climate change. There's a, a book by our friend here in New York, Porter Fox, called The Last Winter, which came out I think maybe a couple of years ago now, but he was going around to the cryosphere, basically, like the parts of the world that have generally been frozen and just making a kind of uh, travelogue register of what has been changing in these places. And I'm curious if you've experienced that. I'm also calling today from one of the few snows we've had here in New York. It's actually snowing right now. It hasn't snowed much this winter or last winter. And um, yeah, I'm curious if you've noticed if the winter has changed up there. The winter has changed profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. This winter, especially, I usually go to Cape Breton in February for a week. I during the academic reading week. And I go and I, by February, usually there's drift ice that comes down from the Arctic and surrounds Cape Breton, Prince Edward Island. Um, and you'll see like from satellite imagery, just the pack ice that, that kind of comes in against the shore. And one of the impacts of that, of the, of the pack ice not coming in the way it usually does is it's created incredible coastal erosion. And so people have homes on the um, edge of the sea cliffs or suddenly those, cl those cliffs are eroding very quickly because it doesn't freeze. And so just the, the constant like freeze thaw and, and the, the winter storms will batter those shorelines. So it just eats away at those. And this winter, especially, I had planned to go out and my intention was to uh, go up high into the highlands, up into the barrens. Um, and these are kind of, it's, it's taiga, kind of subarctic, you know, landscapes and, um, and camp, you know, with the, the tent, with the wood stove and use that as a base to explore some of those areas more or closer because you can travel so much better on the on the snowpack. And this year we didn't get that snowpack. You know, it was just constant freeze thaw. So that's why I went to Killarney, Manitoulin and traveled in the bays. And the ice wasn't great up there either. People were not traveling out to Manitoulin on the ice across the uh like Huron, like they usually do. And in the city as well, the ponds and 
the rivers, the Humber River usually freezes. Last winter, we had a good span of about three or four weeks where it was frozen and there was no freeze-thaw shift. Um, and the freeze-thaw means that when there's ice forms and it thaws, the river level comes up and then it breaks up that ice. And the amount of damage that does is incredible. And so there have been points over the last few years where you'll go down to the Humber River uh, in the city and you'll see blocks of ice there, you know, three, four or five feet thick, piled up in these incredible kind of arrangements. Just it's like a glacier has come down and taken out all kinds of infrastructure and trees and uh, and so on. But last year, we had a little window where it, was, it remained frozen. And I was skied from the lake all the way up to the city, past the airport, past all the big highways up into Woodbridge. And if I had the time, I made it about 40 kilometers just on the ice. And uh, it just weaves its way. It just kind of winds. The river doesn't go in a straight line. It goes through all these kind of marshes and parks and kind of forgotten parts of the city. Um, and it goes all the way up uh, into the Oak Ridge Moraine. And then you can join the Holland Marsh and then go up to Lake Simcoe. These are the, you know, the, the portage routes. This was like the you know, major thoroughfare. And you really get a sense of that when you travel. This year, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I couldn't travel any of the, the waterways. That's, yeah, really dramatic. I think we're seeing the same kinds of changes here. And it's really, you know, shifting our ability to even think through what might be coming next. I think what you're mentioning about coastal erosion, you know, we're seeing the kind of like amplification of these systems that we've thought were fairly steady. And, you know, we had projections about, and we're just seeing kind of like upending of our assumptions about the stability of these systems that I think we're still not yet like imagining what comes next. I know education is a big part of your practice. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the outdoor school project with Diane Borsato, what you're up to and what the idea for that project came out of. Yeah, that, that project came out of very much my conversations with Diane over the years. And Diane's from, grew up in, in Mississauga, um, just outside of Toronto, a suburb. And I grew up in Cape Breton, end of a dirt road on a farm. And really kind of like a lot of my schooling was out there you know, learning from other people, you know, older, older, older farmers, you know, neighbors, you know, different teachers, uh, people who live there. And so, you know, my parents as well. And so it was really kind of a conversation between the two of us and kind of connecting these two different interests. You know, she's a performance artist, a writer, also an amateur mycologist. And a lot of those interests kind of came out of us exploring those places together. So outdoor school was initially, it was a class that she taught at the University of Guelph, that where students were invited to collaborate with the people who ran the campus organic farm, you know, beekeepers, orchardists, you know, different people with specialized knowledge of, of nature and the outdoors and put artists and students in conversation with some of these people. So we've really been trying to use kind of the outdoors as a kind of site instead of a gallery. <laughs> uh, what are other platforms for like making and disseminating work and also creating publics and, and, and dialogue with nature and the outdoors to expand people's like literacy and familiarity you know, with natural spaces, you know, different kinds of knowledge about the outdoors with land. For me, it's a lot of it's about just that time and the presence of being outside and also being outside together and imagining these places in different ways. I took a colleague on a canoe trip down the Humber in the spring, and we were trying to do like a video about sort of teaching in some of these places. What does it mean to teach in or from the Humber River or the Don? or some of these sites, or, or Tommy Thompson Park. It's something I've been ex I'd experimented with a lot during the pandemic because I couldn't meet my students face-to-face -face indoors. And 
so I'd often go to these places and I would use the remote technology to try and teach, you know, from Tommy Thompson Park and see what would happen when I gave the class from the beach and what, what did it do to the course delivery, which was interesting. And one of my observations from that experience was that I think there's the knowledge of a place can be a kind of kind of colonial possession to know the history of, of, of a place, to come to a place and kind of deliver this kind of particular story of what the Humber River is and who lived here when. And I began to sort of see what's really important is the duration, is the incidental knowledge. It's, it's not what we talk about when we travel down the river by canoe. It's more so, it's just that it's that journey. And what kind of relationship does that journey enable you to have with that place? And what kinds of discovery and knowledge and kind of newness, like what do people bring to that place? And so instead of excavating some particular idea of what the past was, is to invite people to form their own stories in relationship to, to a place. I've kind of come to eschew the, le- the lecture, you know, and more of the experience. And so what I often do with students is we just go for a walk. We just, we walk from the subway up to the quarry behind the, the brickworks. And we see what happens. And we maybe we stop and we make tea when we're there. And we build relationships with each other and with that place. And a big part of that is like, is having the right footwear, the right, the right layers, you know, bringing things you need for that journey and making that a habit and part of a practice. You know, what's the duration of that, of that practice? It would be three hours. Yeah, three hours. It's what I can fit into like a standard course length. But I've learned not to, to load it up with readings or more kind of academic deliverables. The knowledge is knowledge that you like you embody. I think it's really fascinating thinking of the kind of observational tool that you would use to assess where you are and what that place is right now kind of becomes a maybe an antidote to those imposed histories or even just to the idea of history, which has a, a kind of colonial weight to it, right? And thinking about what it means to kind of engage with or encounter these places that are having rapid and massive transitions in their structure? That's a great question. I think that's what's really amazing potential about some of these places is inhabiting time in a different way. It's actually encountering the multiplicity of time. The city has its own temporality, the, uh, the roadways, our work, our schedules, this infrastructure, it's, it's kind of, it's industrial time, it's modern time, it's, it's linear time. And the river gives us time as being cyclical, as being multiple, as being deep, as being deep geologic, geological. Um, and I think that's exactly where it is. And that's what, where it doesn't kind of fit the kind of the class curriculum or, or the, the, the duration of a class. Um, how do you open up time through place? And what are ways enable us to do this? We have the flow of the river, this kind of like the cyclical time of, this, of the water, which connects us with everything around the planet. It's this kind of incredible. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it's multitudes, you know, within, within water. It's, it's, it's different states, you know, it's movement through bodies. What it, the, the matter it, uh, it moves, but there's also, you know, the seasons. Um, which you really experience and the impact of weather and snow and freezing and thawing on the river and on, on, on land through the river. And there's traveling the river at different times of the year and at different times of the day. And I'm really struck by some of my experiences traveling the rivers at night. I canoed up the Don River last spring to attend a film screening that the Brickworks had put on with Warren Nongo and Henry Bongo. 
And we, we set off, you know, to good proper time, you know, we thought, oh, this is great. We're going to canoe up to the Portlands and then up the Keating Channel and then up. And well, the, the, the water was very rough and we decided to, to portage up Cherry Street, which delayed us quite a bit. And then the water was high because it rained a bit um, and we anticipated that. And so we ended up canoeing up the Don River at night. And it was incredible because we saw five beavers in the stretch between Richmond Street and Bloor Street. The beavers and muskrats, you know, well occupied those little, you know, little kind of marginal space between the expressway and the, and the rivers. You may have noticed signs of. And the evening, kind of dusk, is when beavers come out. The only place you're going to see beavers is you're, you're right on the water. Um, and similarly, when you travel the wider valleys, like the the Humber, where the city begins to retreat at night, you begin to see how it's a corridor for wildlife. There are coyotes; you can hear them howling sometimes, or see them at night on the Humber, and also you can see the stars. And enough of the city light pollution is kept at bay where you can see, you know, the Milky Way. And so it becomes this encounter with a, with a diff- different kind of temporality. And the river is uncontainable. There's really a sense that you're traveling on routes that people have been traveling for, you know, more than 10,000 years. They've changed, but they haven't changed that much. And so you enter into a different kind of temporal continuity with the more than human, you know, with, with the animals, you know, with other facets of these rich ecosystems we live in, and with with many people who travel those those waterways, and you you meet people on the waterways, you meet people elderly Eastern Europeans who walk you know the river just as not everyone does that, but I remember seeing a, a, an elderly woman with a fur coat and a big hat walking up the Humber, you know, in the freezing cold, and it was the middle of the winter. I was like, not many people would do that. So yeah, it's it's uh. To me, it's about a different kind of temporality. It's river time. It's ecological time. It's geological time. It's not linear time. It's not industrial time. It's not digital time. You enter into a different kind of presence and synchronicity with what's around you. I had taught a class a few years ago called Time in the River, and it was a media class. And it was, I think, trying to, in some ways, think about the ways of knowing a place. And maybe within that like traditional academic or educational institutional kind of format. You can know the various histories of place and you can bring in as many voices within that history as you can find. And you can try to get outside of the canon and bring in other voices and indigenous ways of knowing a place. But there's something very different about just saying it's enough to know this place on this afternoon when we're walking for three hours through the place. And this knowing is equally valid. To me, there's something very transformative and powerful about that. And it really challenges the underpinnings of the kind of formal education systems that we find ourselves working in and through, right? That there's one, A, that there's not one way of knowing a place, that the ways of knowing a place are dependent on everything about that place and it can be tied to like temporal moments, right? And I, I love that you're also drawing this connection back to a kind of continuity. How did you come to that in, in your teaching work? And have you faced pushback or resistance to that? There's a lot of structural resistance because, you know, classes have to be delivered in a certain time frame. And access is a big concern because it requires a kind of mobility that can be a challenge for not everybody, you know, is, is able to go on a 10 kilometer hike up the Don River. But it's something I can do with, with groups that are like where I know people well enough to craft it for those who are coming. If someone uses a wheelchair, for instance, we can you know do a, a journey on the on the Humber. There's you know, paved paths and all kinds of spaces that are quite you know they're very very accessible. The Don is something you know yeah. Even having someone who can steer a canoe well, that's 
that may be an access matter, you know, depending on what you're doing. So much of teaching has become remote and asynchronous. And this is one of the challenges we're dealing with is like asynchronicity broadly. There's a sense of like digital latency. Everything is being kind of uploaded and then downloaded and experienced in that way. And I think that this fundamentally pushes against that because it's really about a kind of temporal synchronicity for the place. And so the radical gesture is it simply is being there. It's being present. It's not having that experience always being mediated through Microsoft Teams or or video recorded and shared online afterwards or documented history being presented. Part of what I'm trying to do is allow a recuperation of knowledge and let the place itself teach us and teach us ways of being, ways of knowing ourselves in relationship to that place. And I think that these places are rendered very exclusive in the popular imagination that they're often kind of the outdoors is becoming so colonized in every possible way, not just private property, but the commercialization of access to do certain outdoor activities. One has to like, you know, own a bicycle, you know, a nice bicycle or a pair of skis or a snowboard or a canoe or pay for and make six months in advance a reservation at a campground. What I want to push against is is that kind of exclusivity and the way that capitalism, you know, commodifies those spaces and the way outdoor culture has been made very, you know, very, 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 very exclusive. You can have these experiences right where you are, on your street, in your backyard, near your house. And I don't think that people always know that that's possible. Rivers are wonderful in that way because we have riparian rights, that we have rights of access, you know, to water for commerce or for travel, you know, to fish, you know, or for trade. These are, you know, these are, these are law-bound rights that allow us to pass through private land on rivers. And for me, that's always been why I'm attracted to rivers, because I can, I can be in a place which is, is full of infrastructure, full of private property, but the river is a public space. It's a public space for animals to travel through, and it's a public space for people to travel through. And so that, to me, is a kind of commons. I think it's really important politically. I think it's important environmentally. I think it's important spiritually. And I think we can recuperate our, our kind of our connection to the land through these, these public spaces that are still here. Uh, so to me, that's, that's something that really kind of plays in. It kind of pushes against. And what I don't want to see is that, that access being continually denied. It's policed by all kinds of people. Like, you know, there is, <laughs> like, for instance, I went to um, way out on the bluffs. I have a little sauna tent on and I thought I'm gonna try this out and hike it out, you know, in my, in my frame pack and with the wood stove and set it up on just on the edge of the beach. I had it below the high water mark on the edge of the beach, which is, you know, that's fine. You can it's below the high water mark. It's not private property. It, it's you know technically crown land. And so I we set up the tent having a nice sauna. And some people came walking at a distance, you know, and they kind of came towards us. I'm like, oh they must be curious. And they had their cameras up, you know, like, oh yeah, they must be wondering what we're doing. I was about to come out, you know, just in my <laughs> my underwear <laughs> and be like, hi, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And they started yelling at us. You know, they said, this is private land. And like, you know, and, and I was like, oh, interesting. They're kind of very threatened by this. And, and so just that gesture of like, there were probably people who live nearby, you know, who, you know, and, and I was like, they're policing, you know, they, 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 this is not actually, they're, they're absolutely wrong. You know, they thought you were squatters setting up camp or I something. Think they, <laughs> I think that they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that seemed to be the case. 
this happens everywhere. Like people are denied access to land, you know, to crown land. Indigenous people are denied access to resources and fishing rights. Like it's it's, it's actually it's state sanctioned in some cases. It's it's often you know citizens, private citizens, perform these kind of quasi state roles, which are often like misguided. What was that exchange? What did you say to them? Well, I was in the sauna. And I was like, I don't want to get out. And then my partner was outside, and she interacted with them. She realized that what was going, you know, she was actually quite disturbed by it. But I was, I actually got out and started walking towards her and ran away. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was not even inject some friendliness into the exchange, you know, be like, oh, I'll explain and see if, but they were not interested. They didn't really want to have that exchange. <laughs> no, they just wanted to <laughs> from a safe distance. Right, a safe right. Distance. Make a statement from a, from a safe distance yeah. and make you feel as uncomfortable as they somehow felt by your being there, which is right. <laughs> hard to imagine. <laughs> we obviously, you know, exploring like urban waterways, uh, we, we get that a lot. There's there's a lot of just kind of misunderstanding about rights of, of access and where you're allowed to be, where you're not allowed to be. And, you know, we had this, I remember this one occasion where we were trying to land down by Manhattan Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn. And there was a, you know, at the time the park there was pretty new. There was a, you know, beautiful waterfront park, like great, you know, it's great. It's access for, for the public. And there's this area that looks like it's a landing. There's a beach and at low tide, it's it's actually really inviting. And and actually you can land there, but there's a kind of riprap, um, you know, kind of a flood prevention, like pile of rocks, uh, big, you know, boulders that they put there to kind of separate out what at low tide looks like this great beach landing. And, uh, and when you get up onto the rocks, you realize that on the other side of the rocks, there's a sign that says you can't climb on the rocks. And so it's like, it's like you actually can't get from the landing beach into the park, at least at the time. And you wouldn't know that from the landing beach, because I think they never expected anybody would really be at the time, you know, kayaking up on the East River, decide to land there for the day. And the signs were really for people who were like playing in the park to not climb on the rocks and fall in. I'm sure it had to do with liability. And, you know, and there's a security guard there, you know, instantly who's, who's, who's like, Hey, you know, you don't can't read the sign. You're not allowed to climb on the rocks. It's like, well, how do we, how do we get from the landing point, you know, into right. the park? And, and actually we're just trying to go up the street to buy a coffee. So, you know, here we are, we're, we're coming to do commerce. <laughs> can we, can we get in there and go get a coffee? You know, it's just like this really bizarre situation where, you know, it's like, well, we can't actually, we're not legally permitted to traverse the rocks. So basically, we just kind of waited till till the guy went away, and then, you know, climbed over the rocks, and it's like, what are you going to do? Arrest? You know, call the police and arrest us for this thing that? So yeah, it's interesting navigating. I think this is something that we were encountering a bit when we did the, the float from Cherry Beach back up the Keating Channel, and you know, thinking about what you were talking about earlier with the kind of time scale and experience of this place, and also with you know what I think that that site will become a much more regimented and regulated place when it's a park, right? The trails and roads will be clearly demarcated and there will be clear expectations and rules. And I'm sure some forms of posted signage that explain to you what you can and can't do on that site. And, you know, so we were leading this trip really with with that in mind, thinking about, you know, how we could access it today and how it would be accessing that same place in the future. And, And I think everybody probably drove out to Cherry Beach or maybe somebody took the bus and some people rode their bikes, but we all got there by the kind of straight line, you know, Cherry Street. It takes, what, five minutes or something to drive down there. And then getting out on the water and the trip back and kind of unclear how long it would take us to navigate back around. And really, I think just by a slow progression through these sites can redefine how people are thinking about these places. And I always think hopefully it'll also like engender some kind of care or stakeholdership or feeling of responsibility for these places. Yeah, absolutely. We really have to know these places if we're going to care about them. 
And so many of these places are microcosms of what's happening around the world. And I really believe firmly like in place-based knowledge and developing like intimacies with the places where we live. People travel so much, you know, we have these incredible infrastructures of air travel and highways and so on. But I've always kind of sought to connect with the places where I live and also between the places where I've, I've lived. I've lived in Cape Breton. I've lived in near Philadelphia for about four years. I lived in, in Toronto and I've always often traveled by bicycle between those places. For me, that was a way of kind of stretching out that space and the time because there's so much richness that we don't experience when we're on the highway or flying over these places. So that's always been a big part of what I really believe in. I, I, I ride my bike to work almost almost every day when I can. It's, it's just a different way of being in the world and also having different relationships with those places. And I think we need to kind of resist some of these kind of more sort of mechanistic kind of industrial even digital kind of forces that really kind of make space this kind of neutral void that can be like traversed through the incredible costs in terms of like both like alienation from where we live, but also in terms of resources, intimately with a greater sense of responsibility to these places and in relationship to other people. It's hard, like getting harder and harder to do this. But, you know, just in my early kind of thinking and, and sort of writing and reading, I think about people like Wendell Berry or, or Gary Snyder, you know, the poet in Sierra Nevada. But also people I you know, knew in Cape Breton, a lot of people had a kind of worldliness, some who had never left the islands, but they had a vast knowledge of where they lived. And so to be able to like develop that knowledge and those relationships and that sense of care uh, and figure out practices that are more sustainable and more resilient, that are more connected to where we live, you know, they're more connected to one another. How do we do that? And a lot of it has to do with kind of staying where we are and practicing relationships to these places. Yeah, I think of this quote by the Southern writer Eudora Welty that has traveled with me in my practice over the years that I've, to understand one place deeply is to know all places better. I think it's it's very true that that kind of deep knowledge of a place allows us to know more about any place that we encounter because it also gives us the tools. And, you know, we develop these tools. We were talking earlier about kind of like iterative design practice of boat building and and the way that like craft itself is. I think of it as a, as a means to know a place and to learn a place because it's very specific. Like the boat has to be designed for the place that you're taking it, right? So there's already this kind of like site specificity in this work. And I think it's interesting too, almost your your practice seems to push against prevalence of these like non-places. I think it's Marc Auger writes about kind of non-places through this like anthropological lens and what, you know, airports and highways and these infrastructures that we developed that are really meant not to be deeply experienced or engaged with. They're sort of like, you know, either they're places that we're supposed to pass through as quickly and as efficiently as possible. The Don River has that history with the name of the Don at one point, almost trying to transform it into this corridor to be used by industry in a way that's not disruptive to the industrial purposes of that place. I really think that that work that you're doing through the outdoor school is pushing back against those ideas, you know, and maybe also like It'll be interesting, you know, even as the site of like the Lower Dawn and, and the Portlands project will impose a kind of certain kinds of order in that site. But, you know, how you as somebody who, you know, might experience or bring that kind of slow meander and the intentionality of site specific kind of observational practice to kind of broaden that or to, you know, to, to maybe undo some of those ideas for how that place is supposed to be used and, you know, impose some other order, or some other imaginary yeah the river has a force all its own it's uncontainable 
And I think, yeah, you're talking about Marco J and, and, and non-places and sort of the homogenization of space. But land has agency. We have weather, rivers, uh, animals. They all act upon us in different ways. And when you travel to Don, you really can see that. You can't, all the efforts to straighten it kind of failed in different ways. And also the Tommy Thompson Park and Leslie Spit, it's this constructed landscape, but it's also a wild landscape. It's I went out there on my bicycle a couple of weeks ago and I found a part of it I'd never been to before. There's a whole kind of peninsula that I'd passed by and I went out to the end of this peninsula and it was very sort of barren, exposed. The city was off at a distance, you know, at white point of land that juts out up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, kind of south of Newfoundland off the top of Cape Breton, where there once had been a settlement. And I was like, wow, like just the, the, kind of the, the force and drama of that landscape, the wind, all the trees and the grass and the birds, you know, populating that i was struck by how the the trees had grown up in the 20s or more years since i've been traveling there had really kind of become a different landscape altogether and i've had moments out there where i'd be sitting on one of those cobble beaches surrounded by all these bricks and pieces of buildings and concrete and pavement and rebar and seeing a couple of you know weasels scamper by kind of almost on schedule you know kind of at certain times every five minutes a weasel would go back and forth and I think that those kinds of spaces enable us to um, kind of get outside of this, the infrastructure and, and certain ideas of time to let non-human forces exert themselves and exert themselves on us and in conversation with us. So it's, it's a different dance with the universe in some of these places, and they enable us to have that. So it might be in a canoe on, on the dawn, or it might be in a windstorm on Leslie Spit, or it could be all, all sorts of places, but how can we enter into deeper dialogues with the places that we live in? Amish, I think this is a a really great place to leave it. It's such a pleasure to get to talk with you today. So thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thank you, Dylan. It was great. Great to chat with you, too. This has been Don River Radio. This is Dylan Gauthier of Marley Barham. I'd like to thank Marley Barham members Jean Barberis, Ben Cohen, Sunita Prasad, Kendra Sullivan, and Stefan von Mullen. I also want to take a moment to acknowledge that the sacred lands through which the Don River flows are the traditional territories, homelands, and Nunagat of the respective First Nations, Matisse Nations, and Inuit, who are the longtime stewards of these lands. I want to acknowledge that Toronto is built on occupied Indigenous territory, traditional homelands of the Wendat, the Patoon First Nations, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River. I'm currently recording this from Lenape Hoking, the traditional ancestral lands of the Lenape people in what is commonly known today as New York City. Our collective is Marley Barham. Our project is DawnRiverRadio.ca. We're hosted by Evergreen Brickworks in Waterfront, Toronto, and supported by Artworks TO, Year of Public Art. Our audio engineer is Tom Upjohn. Special thanks as well to our collaborators, Shannon Gerard, Maria Hupfield, to curators Charlene Lau, Chloe Catan, and Kari Swinar. Music, as always, is by Jantar.